Today's reading is from Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, Daniel was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of the words, and as I heard the sound of the words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face in the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. Now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, except Michael, your prince. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Uh, I I chose to take that one this morning to spare someone having to read 21 verses up here. And and so I was like, I'll do that one. Um, As I I do that, I don't know different church traditions you may have come from. And reading the Bible up front may just seem like a religious thing or just kind of tradition. But I'm reminded, uh, and you need to be reminded when I do that, when we do that as a church, we're basically saying the word of God is central to everything that comes out of this place and what comes out of my mouth. 
And so I trust and we trust the word of God and not my voice. And um, I'm going to see if I can handle it in a way that honors that. It, it also reminds me as I stand here too, um, that the pulpit is the centerpiece of the church and that the word of God is rooted right here. And so uh, just a reminder why we do such things and not just for tradition sake. Uh, open up to Daniel 10. If you're there, let me uh, remind you of what happened on the morning of September the 11th of 2001 when terrorists uh, turned three passenger planes into guided missiles. And on that day, 2,500 citizens of America were killed. Our nation's search for answers. How in the world could this happen? How in the world could radical backwoods, backwater uh, radicals perpetrate such a strike on American soil. How could this happen? So they begin to launch a investigation. And after all of the intel was gathered and after the investigation was completed, this was the conclusion. They were at war with us, but we were not at war with them. Now, I don't know what you believe about 9-11 and all the details. That's not the point. The point is, they were at war with us, but we were not at war with them. I, I, be, I say that, and I use that story today because I believe that is the approach that many people take in regards to the idea of spiritual warfare, this cosmic conflict that we face every day with the devil, with his disciples, in what Paul calls the heavenly places. We fail to see that they are at war with us and so that we are not at war with them. Today in Daniel 10, we begin the fourth and final vision of Daniel in this book. This vision begins in 10 and it goes all the way till chapter 12. And really what God is doing in this revelation to Daniel is he's pulling back these curtains. He's looking behind the physical realm of the earth. And he's giving us, Daniel, a peek behind the invisible realm where there are unseen enemies in unseen places that have unseen weapons as they wage an unseen war against God and his people. And I think what we're going to see today, that even though the battle rages, uh, we can be confident and we can be bold in the battle. So that's the title of our message today, Bold in the Battle. Uh, let's, let me read verse 1 again, because there's a lot happening in verse 1 that will help us, I think, navigate through. So let's look at this, just verse 1 again. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel 10 opens up, and we get, we get an idea of some dating that's happened here. It's the third year of King Cyrus's reign. This is 536 BC. And this is also two years after the vision in chapter nine. But get this, 
This is also two years after Cyrus issued a decree that permitted all the Israelites to go back home to Jerusalem after the 70 years of exile that they had been under. So this is a a prophesied event. Hey, you can all go back now. But it's two years after this. And yet Daniel is still in Babylon. Why is Daniel still in Babylon? There's been a a few different uh, views or opinions because we don't specifically see here. Some say uh, he's 85, and that is probably accurate. Some say, well, hey, he didn't want to go back to Jerusalem and begin the rebuilding project of the temple. It's a young man's game, so he's just going to stay there. Um, Others say that he stayed in Babylon because... Um, he wanted to continue to serve the kings. And they asked him to stay. Hey, Daniel, stay with us. And he thought, maybe I can continue to honor the Lord in this. And so maybe he stayed there. I don't think that's the primary reason he stayed. I think he stayed in Babylon because there was still a lot of ministry to be done in Babylon. Um, although it had been two years since Cyrus issued the decree, they could all go back. Do you know that Ezra tells us that only 42,000 went back? That sounds like a lot, but that's actually a drop in the bucket to the amount of people that were in exile in Babylon. Only 42,000, maybe it could be a fraction of it. Why? Why in the world would these people who could go back home to Jerusalem choose to stay in Babylon. Well, let me tell you this. It wasn't because they were missionaries. They stayed. They chose to stay in Babylon because they had fallen in love with Babylon. They loved their jobs. They loved their positions. They loved their possessions. They loved their influence. They loved their lifestyle. They had become so completely paganized that they had forgotten who they were, exiles meant for another world on a mission from God in Babylon. They'd forgotten all of it. This is a great pause for a lesson here. It's like these, they were like brooks from Shawshank. They were free, but they chose to stay in prison because it was just more comfortable for them. Great lesson for us. Don't fall in love with Babylon. Don't fall in love here. Don't don't get too comfortable here with our jobs and possessions and positions. And if we're not careful, we can become completely paganized. We can forget our mission in Babylon and that we are meant for another home. Great lesson here. But Daniel was there and he was heartbroken over this. It's almost as if he was this shepherd who was trying to get the sheep out of Babylon. So he stayed behind, burdened him. He's heartbroken for the people, fallen in love with the world. They had forgotten God. Now also, Daniel was greatly burdened and heartbroken because he had heard the news that the ones who did go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and uh, activate again the sacrificial system, he, he had been told that they had faced the opposition from neighboring nations. Now that also was something that was prophesied earlier by Jeremiah, but they're getting, they're, the, the temple building project has been halted. They've got opposition, so he's heartbroken over that. 
The people who are in Babylon, the love of the world, the ones who are in Jerusalem, he's broken, conflicted. And then upon top of all of that, we're told in verse 1 that he receives a vision, a word from the Lord. It was true. And this vision was of a great conflict. It was a great conflict that was in the future, that it was coming in days that had yet not come. He knew what the visions meant by that point. He, he knew that it pointed t- towards something in the future. So he's just broken. He's got heartache. He's in great conflict eternally. And this is the time of the Passover. So what Daniel should be doing is celebrating and feasting right now during this time. But that's not what he's doing. We're told in the passage that Daniel didn't eat any rich food ate no meat or wine, nothing entered his mouth, and he didn't put any oil on his body for three weeks. So uh, let me kind of tell you what that's kind of like. Uh, Imagine the next few weeks of celebration and holidays that you're going to walk into, right? Imagine no rich foods, no delicacies, no little Debbies and no pecan pies over the next three weeks. Imagine no meat, no sausage balls, no smoked turkey. Imagine no wine, no spiked eggnog. Imagine uh, that, that you don't even get to put on D.O. for your B.O. This is a, you don't even get to get essential oils out, put in a diffuser, nothing. You are just in complete mourning, fasting. He's completely just distraught about all these things. And we're told in verse 12 that he was also praying during this time, and he did it for three weeks. Three weeks, this is his posture. Then after morning fasting, praying for three weeks, then this angelic messenger sent by God comes to Daniel while he is out on the banks of the Tigris River. This is modern-day Iraq. And he comes to give him this vision uh, this, there's this vision of a terrifying man to, to let Daniel know what's going on in true reality. That's the picture of all of this that we get, this terrifying man. Now, let's talk about who the terrifying man is because I promise you I've studied 20 different commentaries this week from old guys that are dead to new guys today and no one seems to be able to figure out who this terrifying man is, all right? Uh, the different views on this. Number one, some say it's Gabriel, the same angelic interpreter seen in chapters eight and nine, but here he isn't named. And there's a description given of him here when there was not previously a description in the other two chapters. So that kind of says, hey, I don't really know, man, if that's Gabriel. Others say, okay, it's not Gabriel. It's just an unnamed angelic messenger who comes with the dread and the power and the glory of God with him as a messenger from the divine. That's the other opinion. The other view is that this is a either theophany or Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And it's easy to make the leap of that here because of the dress code and description of this angel, right? This is a, almost a word-for-word mirror of what John got and received in the book of Revelation chapter 1, I think verse 12 and 13. And so it's easy to make that, that assumption here. 
that this is a Christophany, this is Jesus Christ. And so that's a, that's a view. Uh, others see that and they're like, okay, this can't be Jesus because um, we're told here in verse 10 that he was delayed in his coming and that he got assistance from Michael. And so people look at that and like, hey, can't be Jesus. Jesus is always on time, he's never delayed and clearly he doesn't need any assistance from anybody. So all that being said, I'll tell you my opinion. My opinion is that this is a Christophany and that down in verse 10, um, I I think that might be another angelic visitor that kind of comes in. He's the one that's delayed. He's the one that is fighting and needs Michael's help. But I tend tend to think that and believe that. But but here's, here's what I do know. The kingdom of God is a very big place. And it is, is plenty big enough to hold any one of any of those three different views, okay? And so here's what I want you to know. Although the messenger may be in question here, the message is not. Messenger may be in question, but the message is not. What is the message that this terrifying vision of a man comes to give to Daniel? Well, we, we learn what the vision is or the message really by looking again at the description of the angelic visitor here. The linen was the garment the high priest wore when they went into the Holy of Holies, sash around the waist. They went in there to give the sacrifices for the forgiveness of people's sins. So this vision was a reminder, God forgives sins. And so I think that probably might've been given a vision to Daniel because he was probably thinking, okay, God's getting ready to come and lower the boom on all those people back in Babylon, the Israelites. He's just gonna lay the boom. And I think this was a vision that says, okay, God God is steadfast, he's kind, he's a forgiving God for those who love Christ. I think, so I think that, that's a vision there. I think we see a vision of his face. It has the appearance of lightning. Lightning is a biblical symbol for God's sovereignty and power. When, when, you, when you watch lightning or you experience lightning or a thunder, don't you feel really, really small when that happens? I mean, I, I, feel, I feel the thunder of God when I feel lightning striking in the sky. That's true. You should feel that way. You should feel very small. I think that's a design by God to let us remind us he is strong. He is almighty and he is powerful. Fiery eyes. Well, fire in the scripture is a symbol of God's judgment. God's judgment. We also see the sound of his voice. He had one voice that sounded like a roar of the multitudes, like one voice that was as loud as a roar of a stadium full of 100,000 people. We're seeing a clear message here. And that message given to Daniel, I believe, is, hey, God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. And he's fully capable of handling all of the conflict in the world. Daniel, you don't need to worry about this. God's going to come and judge his people and, or I'm sorry, judge his enemies and he's going to come and redeem his people. It's okay, Daniel. You can calm down and you can be bold in the battle. So that's basically the story. You know, it, this, this vision, uh, it, uh, it, it, it sends Daniel into a coma. Uh, whenever people in the Bible encounter anything of the angelic, they don't walk away saying, oh, that was cool. 
Oh, that was awesome, man. I saw Jesus. I saw the angel of the Lord. No, they, they end up with their face on the ground, undone, in a coma. Why is that important? Man, I think, I think that there's a, there's a reverence that is to be done. Although we are created in the image of God, we're also nothing like him. And that's a good reminder for me that when I walk into this place on Sunday to gather with God's people, I kind of come in with that posture. I don't come in walking around, oh, man, I'm pretty good. I'm cool. This is awesome. I kind of, okay, I'm in the presence of a holy God. So I think that's what's happening here with this posture as he receives this vision of a man. So let's talk about three things today that I think we can pull out of this uh, passage. The first thing I want us to see today is that we will face great conflict. We will face great conflict. Look again at verse 13 and 14. It says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is days yet to come. Here, when this heavenly messenger, I'll use that term, When he said he was delayed because he was fighting the king of Persia, he wasn't talking about a physical king of Persia, although there was a physical king of Persia. What he's really referring to here is a conflict not with Cyrus, but a conflict of a territorial spirit or a demon. This is the cosmic battle that I told you we were going to look at here today. This is the messenger pulling back the curtains and showing Daniel, hey, there's a lot of conflict that is happening to God's people in the world. But I I want you to know right now, hey, hey Daniel, there's a, a cosmic battle that parallels what's happening on the earth. There's a deeper, bigger thing that's happening than, than what you just see with the naked eye, Daniel. It's happening now, Daniel, but it's going to also happen uh, not only in your day, Daniel, but it's going to happen throughout all of history, and it's going to happen in his day and our day, and it's going to continue to happen in days to come until the return of Christ. There will be a great conflict for God's people. We know this because God has given us his word. It's true. It's true. It's biblical and it's evident today. Let's just talk about, let's talk about what the world looks like today. And let's say, well, do we see conflict in the world today? I think it's pretty clear to do that. Wars, physical wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, political wars, gender wars, race wars. I think we see cosmic war all around us and conflict. Then we see a lot of personal conflict too, don't we? You know, we see personal wars and conflict all over the place. Twitter, turf wars. People going back and forth all day long fighting with each other. Facebook fist fights. Relational conflict with one another. It's so ironic that this week I saw a story uh, of where um, people had gathered at this museum to watch a screening of a film that was showing 
Hamas's attack against Israel. And they were showing it, and it was supposed to be a peaceful uh, filming. And a massive fight broke out after the screening of the film. Now, here's the ironic part. Do you know what the name of the museum was that they were showing the film? It was the Museum of Tolerance. <laughs> and they're fighting. This is a picture. We have conflict all around us all day long. And no one questions that. No one questions that. Job, we would agree with Job. As a man is born to trouble on this earth, as his sparks fly upward. It's a certainty that we're going to face conflict. Well, here in chapter 10... Again, the lesson we're learning here is behind all of the earthly conflicts, there is a a, a cosmic heavenly conflict happening in the heavenly places. It's called spiritual warfare. And it is what Paul referred to in Ephesians 6. Let's look at it because this is basically the Daniel 10 of the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is reminding us here that the root cause of all conflict is this underlying spiritual battle that's happening in heavenly places. What does that battle look like? I think it's very important to identify the devil and his minions and what they do. I, I do think it's important. I think it's important to acknowledge that the devil hates God. He hates God's people. And so what does he, what does he do? He deceives the world. He, every time the word of God is preached and the gospel is shared, he tries to pluck it up and tear it out. I think he thwarts missionary activity. I think he throws pastors in prison. I think he persecutes the church. I think he causes church division when you have a unified people who are supposed to be glorifying God. I think he gets in there, causes division, so then church people just sit around and fight over second and third tier doctrines, and he just laughs. Like, yep, that's what I want you to do. He's very, very good at what he does too. I think the devil's disciples, they employ the powers of media, state, the machines of culture to promote an anti-Christ agenda. You 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 wanna know what the fruit of their labor is? Here's the fruit of the devil's and his minions' labor is. The fruit of it, CRT, LGBTQ, whatever. That's the fruit of their labor. The fruit of their labor is when arguably one of the most popular female pop stars gets up and tells everybody to go out and vote so we can make sure that the murder of babies is legal. Maybe you know who I'm talking about. That's the spirit of the Antichrist behind all of it. I get mad. I get mad. Cosmic forces of darkness, they promote pronouns. They promote the mutilation of children and their body parts and call it health care. 
dark forces are behind progressive liberal Christianity that abandons biblical orthodoxy. Hey, just toss it all out. We got a new thing going on here. Man, that's the spirit of the Antichrist in that. I think the spirit of the Antichrist is behind the promotion of political idolatry, Christless conservatism. We could go on and on about the different manifestations of the cosmic forces. But the devil's schemes are also very personal and they're very subtle. They attack more personal ways, like they attack our marriages. They attack our homes, our houses, schools, where our children are, classrooms. He's very good at it, and there's a lot of fruit of their labor. When we talk about spiritual warfare, I think I agree with C.S. Lewis. He made a statement, I'll paraphrase. He said, when it comes to spiritual warfare... Uh, there are two great errors that occur, overbelieving and disbelieving, okay? So there's some who overbelieve. They have this excessive obsession with demonology. Oh, I have a spirit of anxiety in me. I have a spirit of fear. I, I, have a, I think I'm sick. I might have a, a spirit of, of cancer in me. And so they just get obsessed with demonology. The devil did this. The devil's making me do that. And what, what they do is, is they just minimize their sin. It's what they do. Their, their, their great commission is go therefore and bind up and cast out demons. That's what they do. And there are churches that actually do this. There's a, you can Google later a thing called deliverance ministry. Google it later and then stay as far away from it as you possibly can because they have an unhealthy obsession with spiritual warfare and demonology. Well, there's also another error and it is the error of disbelief or at least a minimization of belief in demons. And that's an easy one too because we're rationalists, aren't we? We, we live in the I believe it when I see it world, the touch, the hear, the smell, all. That's where we live. And so it's easy for us to blame all of the conflict on evil, dumb people, right? Oh, it's a system problem. It's the politicians. It's, my, it's these dumb, evil people that are constantly doing wicked, wicked, wicked things. And so they make the great error that they don't acknowledge or they fail to acknowledge that there is an enemy. He's mighty. He is mighty. He's not the almighty, but he's mighty. The Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that we have three sworn enemies. The world, flesh, and the devil. Church, we have been given a word. The word is true. There will be great conflict of today. It was in Daniel's day, in our day, and yet in the days to come until Christ returns but there is good news that comes with that. By the way, if anybody wants to know where I stand in millennial views, I'm a positive amil. So there you go. Uh, let's go to the second piece here. We pray to dispatch the divine. We pray to dispatch the divine. Read with me Daniel 10, 12. Then he said to me, this is, the angel speaking to 
Daniel. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. I read this chapter several times this week before I began to study and do commentary, and I, 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 I didn't see the word pray in there one time. And I was like, I mean, he's not praying. Like, where's, where's the say he's praying at? I don't see a prayer involved in here. But we, we read here, listen to what happened. Number one, Daniel was in such conflict, so concerned over all the things that God's people were facing. We are told, after he did this for three weeks, we're told that this heavenly messenger shows up and he says these words, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel was praying. And when da- Daniel was praying, heaven's muscles came. And prayer, what it did is it dispatched the divine. That's what's happening here. This is awesome. I, I don't know if you're like me. I shared this with my, my group of guys on Wednesday night. Sometimes I sit around and I pray, I'm like, Man, I don't know. Does God listen to me? Does he hear me? How quick does he come? And like, what's going on? Rational, kind of my mind takes over. And then I read a passage like this. And wow, was I comforted. God hears the prayers of his saints. And when they cry out to God, he dispatches the divine. Daniel has over and over and over again proven to be a man of prayer. He lived in a wicked Babylon culture. There's conflict all around. And what we see from Daniel is he spent a lot more time on his knees praying than he did complaining to everyone else in the world about the problems. Because he was a mighty man of God. He was bold and he got down on his knees because he knew that prayer dispatched the divine. Church conflict, we've talked about the conflict that is in the world today. The conflict of the American church that's prone to abandon faith and scripture. How should we respond? Through prayer, praying. Praying, we're also told and we know that we should be burdened over the persecuted church. You know that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the face of the earth? It is. According to the World Watch List, 309 million Christians are living under extreme persecution. North Korea, Afghan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Iran, Nigeria. Lester Holt won't tell you that. Why do you think the Christian persecution is marginalized? Because there are dark cosmic forces behind it. That's why. We should pray. We should dispatch the divine and cry out to God. God, send reinforcements to our people on the ground. In places where the soil is like concrete and the word of God is not getting through. should cry out because it's wartime. 
It's a time of war. And prayer is a weapon to be used in a time of war. I love this quote by John Piper. I've been using this probably for 10 years. You probably heard it before. He says this, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. It's a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. Church, it is a battle. We are at war. Let us be a praying people that dispatch the divine. Let's go to the last point. We are greatly loved. We are in a great conflict. We pray to dispatch the divine, and we are greatly loved. Look at verse 19. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Remember, Daniel had been undone, comatose. It scared the liver and the life out of him. He's just drained. He's got no strength, nothing. He's defeated. He's down, all these kind of things. And so this angel of the Lord here comes in and tells him twice, two times here in verse 10, one time in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 9. He says, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Underline greatly loved in your Bibles. Because these two words is what strengthened Daniel. So he was undone, weak, no strength, nothing in him. And then he hears the words, greatly loved. And that Turn the corner for Daniel. It strengthened him in that moment. Why? Because that was the greatest two words that Daniel could ever, ever hear. It was life to his soul, balm to him, whatever you want to call it. It it was exactly what he needed, the two most powerful, comforting words that Daniel could have heard in that moment. And because he was greatly loved, he says, you don't need to fear. You have peace with God. Daniel, you have an angel of armies fighting for you every day. You're not alone in this. Daniel, you are greatly loved. Greatly loved. Don't we all want to hear that from God? You do want to hear that. Greatly loved. In those two words... Hang everything in your life to know that you are greatly loved by God. If you can grasp that, if we can grasp that, we too have no reason to fear. We have peace with God. And we have a champion in heaven fighting for us. And he's an undefeated champion. We aren't alone. And we will never, ever lose We are conquerors in Christ. How can we make sure that we will hear the words greatly loved? So today, if you stood before a holy God, are you confident 
that you would hear the words greatly loved. Let me just remind everyone in here so we could be theologically accurate. How can we be certain that we hear the great, that we are greatly loved? Well, let me tell you this. You don't earn the great love of God. He doesn't say, you're greatly loved because you got baptized. You're greatly loved because you went on a mission trip. You're greatly loved because you go to Life Point Stewart's Creek. You're greatly loved because you take communion. You're greatly loved because you give and you serve the church. You're greatly loved because you have great eschatology. You're greatly loved because of what you wear to church. You're greatly loved because you read your Bible and you do a lot of holy things. And you have a great church resume. Therefore, you're greatly loved. No, 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 no. That is not the way that you hear the words greatly loved. Greatly love is not earned, it's freely given by God for all of those who just trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can ever be certain that you're going to hear the words greatly loved by grace through faith, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Greatly loved. Let me just remind you how much you are greatly loved. I don't know if I have time. Like that's the guy's in my thought. How much time do we have left? I could go on and on about the great love of God. Let me tell you, if you're in Christ Jesus today, here's how he has greatly loved you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you chose him. He chose you in Christ And in a moment, he gave you life. You were spiritually dead. That's how much he greatly loves you. He woke you up from the dead. He greatly loved you by giving you Christ's righteousness and Christ's perfection to you. He greatly loved you by justifying you. You have peace with God. That's how much he's greatly loved you. He's greatly loved you because he has promised you that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You will never see the back of God's head, only his face forever and ever. That's how much he's greatly loved you. He's greatly loved you so much that he promises to work all things together for good in your life for those who love Christ Jesus. He has promised to walk through the deepest of valleys in your life and go with you. He loves you so much that he has promised to keep you to the very, very end and nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the great love of God. That's how much he loves you. And that's just in three, four minutes. We can't even comprehend the unconditional love of God. This is the love that all other loves in this world are measured against. This is the greatest love of all. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think it's important to acknowledge we all seek love. We all want it. Some people chase love in relationships. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, a brother, a sister, a family member, Worldly things, we all want that love, unconditionally fully known love, don't we? We do. There is no human, no mortal on the planet that can ever give you this kind of love. If you are trying to seek 
love and anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ today, would you give up? Give up. Give your life, surrender over to the great love of God through Jesus Christ. And you will know, you will know the greatest love that this world has ever known. If you don't know, if you aren't certain of if you will hear those greatly loved words, Christ didn't die on a cross so you could sit around the rest of your life and question that decision. It's a confident assurance kind of love. And if you don't know it, come talk to somebody today when we get done. For those that do and are certain, one of the ways that we celebrate that we are greatly loved is we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. This is really the love of God manifested in a symbolic way through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're a assigned deacon this week to issue or administer the sacraments with me, would you come up and kind of get into position this love was made possible, was secured by Christ and his cross. And so that's what we'll do here. If you're a follower of Jesus, born again, um, confessed of sins, repentant, trusted in the Lord Jesus, uh, you please eat and drink with us as a church. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, uh, we would ask that you would withhold from the elements today. We're going to hand these out. And then uh, I'm going to give you some space. I'd like to con- for you to contemplate a couple of things. Contemplate what the great love of God means to you. Start with you and what you've done in your life. And you'll quickly see that you haven't earned the love of God, but then quickly turn to Christ and let the word of God that you're greatly loved wash over you. And then I'm going to come up and we'll take together, okay?
God, thank you for sending us a word today. We agree it is true. God, we agree and acknowledge that we are in the midst of conflict. Father, help us to be a people that, people of prayer. We spend more time on our knees crying out to you. And God, would you dispatch the divine to the aid of our prayers. And God, thank you above all things for saying those two words to us, that we are greatly loved in Christ. For in those two words, we can be bold in the battle. We ask all these things in his precious name. Amen.